The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Support for this show comes from Monroe Products, dedicated to helping people develop their full potential with its extraordinary Hemi-Sync Brainwave Entertainment Technology for balancing and focusing the brain. Learn more at hemisync.com. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. My guest today is author, editor, and consultant Parvati Marcus. Parvati is past president of the board of the Neem Karoli Baba Ashram and Temple and a development consultant with the Global Peace Initiative of Women Religious and Spiritual Leaders. Her new book, Love Everyone, is an anthology of reminiscences of the guru Neem Karoli Baba. He's also known as Maharaji. And it's reviewed in the November-December issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Parvati Marcus, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm really happy to talk with you and to either introduce or reintroduce or just expand people's knowledge of uh, Neem Karoli Baba, who's a fascinating and wonderful teacher of perennial wisdom. I was thinking about it, and I thought that whether people know his name or not, millions of people have been touched by his teachings through the work of some of his Western disciples like uh, Ram Das and Daniel Goleman, Krishna Das, Jai Utah. I mean, I got a whole list if I thought about it long enough. How did you come to him? Well, I came to him basically through meeting Ram Das in 1969 after Ram Das had returned from his first trip to India when he first met Maharaji. I actually had gone to a party and met a guy who said, hey, you want to go meet a saint? <laughs> I'll have sure, to try that line. Not, Does it work? You know? <laughs> That's a good line. And we drove up to, uh, he was staying at his father's farm in New Hampshire at the time. And we drove up the driveway, and he happened to be standing outside wearing his white dress and his bare feet and his long beard, doing his mala. And I looked at him, and I saw light coming from him. And I was completely blown away. And I moved in to this group that was living there uh, the next day. Just so we're clear, we're talking about Ramdas. Ramdas, yes. Right, so if people aren't up on this, we'll put a plug in for the movie Fierce Grace. Now, I don't know, are you in that film? Well, yes, and, you know, little, you, you won't hear me, but I'm standing by a tree at some point. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right, and so I wanted what he had from where he had gotten it. And, and then you went to India to get it. I went to India to get it. I mean, it took me a year and a half to get there. I had to earn some money to, you know, get over to India, but I did it. I did it in a year and a half, and I happened to be there at the same time Ramdas was for his second visit and actually left on the same day on the same plane with him. So my time with Maharaji is very tied up with Ramdas in a lot of ways. Give us a sense of your experience with Neem Karoli Baba. It's an extraordinary experience. It's something that we in the West don't often have the opportunity for, if ever, which is to sit in front of somebody who 
knows everything about you. And he frequently let us know that he knew everything about us and still loves you absolutely unconditionally. And, you know, that was an extraordinary experience. I mean, I had actually met him in a photo years before I went to India after that summer with Ramdas. And I used to talk to his picture all the time. And, of course, never told anybody that. You don't tell people you talk to pictures. And when I got to India and met Maharaji, one of the first things he said to me was, you used to talk to my photo all the time. He said, you asked many questions. Wow, that's a little mind-blowing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What tradition were you coming out of? How were you raised? Well, I was raised in a Jewish household that was a totally non-religious household. I mean, I thought the New York Times and Bagels and Locks on Sunday was being Jewish. I think I had gone to Sunday school very early on when I was young, but I came home and wanted my parents to start lighting candles, and so they pulled me out. So I literally had very little religious training. I think I knew more Catholic catechism from testing my friends who used to go to catechism every Thursday after school. (laughs) When you got to India, I imagine you found yourself in basically Maharaji's synagogue, because so many of the people that went there, I mean, Ramdas and Goldman and Krishnadas and Jayutta, they're all Jewish. All Jewish, I know. A lot of people were Jewish. It was quite amazing. And, you know, some of them had had more religious training than I certainly had, but there was still all that sense of dissatisfaction with organized religion, whether the people were Catholic or Jewish or whatever they were there at the time, you know, and searching for something deeper for connecting in in a spiritual way, not just a religious way. Maharaji didn't write books. He didn't give sermons. There's not a collection of talks that that he delivered. What was his message? His message was so simple and so difficult yet to do, which basically was love everyone, feed everyone, remember God and tell the truth. And that really was it. That and what he always said was this sub-ek, it's all one, over and over again. Christ and Hanuman are one. Everybody, you know, it's all one. The real teaching was love. I mean, sitting in front of him was just being in the presence of the love that Rumi talks about. I don't know if you can describe that. Let's start just physiologically. I mean, did it change the way you breathed? You know, so many things. I mean, I remember Maharaji leaning over, you know, he sat on this wooden bench that's called a tucket. And, you know, we sat on the ground in front of him and around him. And he was in constant motion. And he'd lean over at one point and touched me very gently, like with a fingertip on the top of my head. And I felt like all the atoms in my body rearranging. It was a very visceral experience of what love meant in the sense that it could come into you and just transform you. So the fact that he could trigger that in you, who do you think he was? Do you think he was just a guy and that was it? Or do you think he was channeling something else or was he something else? Oh, well, I mean, there's, of course, millions of stories in India about Maharaji being an incarnation of Hanuman, who is the monkey god in Hindu mythology that served Rama when he was king. And Hanuman himself is an incarnation of Lord Shiva. So, you know, there are those who will say that Maharaji is partly an incarnation of Shiva. Uh, You know, he's really, you know, what he is, as far as I can tell, (laughs) a fully enlightened being, whatever that means. I mean, you could push any way you wanted, and it would sort of go all the way through. There was nothing in him other than this radiation of love. You know, I was reading, to prepare for this interview, I was reading Ram Dass's collection of stories mm-hmm. uh, about Maharaji, and 
in there, there's a, a, a devotee, maybe you know who she is, I, I think it's a woman, Anjani. So she writes about Neem Karoli Baba, and I won't read the whole little thing, but she says he usually sat or he was laid on, on a wooden bench wrapped in a plaid blanket while a few devotees sat around him. And visitors came and went, and they were given food, a few words, a nod, a pat on the head or back, and they were sent away. You must have observed this. Oh, yes. So yeah. what did you see happen in them when they got a pat on the head or the back? Um, well, you're talking mostly about the Indians. I mean, we would sit. The, the, the group of Westerners were treated sort of specially. Um, you've got to understand, we were only there for the last three years of his life. And the Indians had been coming to see him for, you know, 40, 50 years. <laughs> and they would come with their household problems. And, you know, sit and have a moment with him. And then he would pat him on the head or give them some prasad, you know, give them an apple. And they would go away back to their lives. Whereas we were actually there to be with him. That was our life right then. Okay, yes. Very different. Very and it different. Was very, very different. Yes. And they're looking for pastoral counseling and you were looking for the divine. Exactly. Yes. So Of course, we, he had some very, very close Indian devotees who became very close family to us, you know, who acted as our translators, who, you know, told us stories from all the decades past. So we have a very close connection with a lot of his Indian devotees, but not the day-to-day -day ones who just sort of came through. Your new book is called Love Everyone, mm -hmm. and I'm curious as to how you do that. It's a path. It's a lifelong path. Taking a clue from Ramdas, as the way he describes it, is that when Maharaji would tell him to love everyone, which he would do, and Ramdas would say, I can't do that. And Maharaji would say, love everyone. And Ramdas began to realize that if he could see everyone as a soul and not as their role or as their personality or their race or religion or whatever they were, but to see them as having within each one a glimmer of God, that's the part where you can love everyone. And when you're sitting within your own heart and you can look at somebody else and say that within them, they also have that spark of the divine. In that sense, you can love everyone. And he could do that with everyone. We have a little more trouble. Well, just one of the things that you notice when you're in India versus United States, and this is not a spiritual judgment. This is just an observation about culture. When we greet one another in the West, you know, we hold out our right hand, which you can trace back to the Romans as a sign of being unarmed. So we're saying to someone when we first meet them, look, I'm not going to kill you. I don't have a weapon in my right hand, which is why left-handed people are oftentimes in trouble in the West. People don't <laughs> trust them. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org thrive. My dad was, was left-handed in, in elementary school. They really beat up on him, trying to get him to be right-handed. They really thought something was evil about it. And that traces back to the fact that I can, if I'm left-handed, I can shake with an unarmed right hand and stab you with an armed left. So, so our greeting is, I mean, really based on fear. Don't, don't fear me. I'm not going to kill you. Whereas when you go to India and you, know, you place your palms together and you bow to one another and you say namaste or namaskar, you're bowing to the divine manifesting as that being. 
It's exactly. God meeting God as opposed right. to two warriors agreeing right. not to kill one another. That in and of itself sets up this notion of loving everyone as a manifestation of, of Shiva or God or, you know, however right. you want to Another thing that did that just by being in India was that um, there were all these manifestations of the divine feminine. There were goddesses. We didn't have goddesses, <laughs> you know, back in the West. It was just uh, as a woman being in India, you know, having a connection, especially after Maharaji would name you after a goddess, to that aspect of the divine was really an incredible teaching. So why do you think that doesn't translate into the way they actually treat women in India ancient yeah, times or now? It's the same patriarchal setup, you know? <laughs> yeah, except that, you know, in the West, like you said, the gods don't have goddesses. In the East, right. you can't have Shiva without Shakti. Right. So why don't the men realize, wait, the, fem the females, the women are our equals, but they have the same patriarchal madness that I mean, you can't trace it to an all-male uh, religious right. system because they don't, they don't do it that way. And yet the pre prejudice is still there. All I can say is that um, the only way I can look at that is as a matter of sort of the ladder of consciousness. The more conscious you are, the less you're able to treat anybody as other. You know, within every society, you have the same people that are devoted to the uh, political way things are set up to the caste system. We did not experience that because the people we met and the people we stayed with and the people that the Indians that we came to know did treat women with respect and did treat them as an aspect of the divine. So that's, like I said, level of consciousness. Level of consciousness, always. I know that Ramdas would, would a lot of Neem Karoli Baba's disciples, they sort of pray to him. They continue a conversation, even though he's been dead for decades. Mm -hmm. They feel his presence. They feel he's an active agent still in their lives in his experience of his stroke. I mean, Ramdas felt that's uh, the fierce grace of his guru, yeah. uh, which is where the title of that movie comes from. What's your experience? Do you have an ongoing relationship? Absolutely. I, I feel that this book is his book. When I first met Ram Dass back in 1969, I became his secretary right away and uh, you know, would help typing up his letters to all the people that were writing to him because he already had done one round of, of lecturing around the country. So people were, back in those days, snail mail writing to him. Um, and when I got to India, at one point, Maharaji said to me, you used to be Ram Dass's secretary. He said, now you're mine. <laughs> and, uh, and he used to call me in English periodically. He would say, private secretary, <laughs> private secretary. <laughs> and so I feel like this book is sort of my being a secretary to Maharaji and bringing forth these stories. And yes, he's always present. And I wouldn't call it praying to him as much as a, a place of devotion in your heart that just never leaves. Okay. Yeah, I, I knew the word prayer was wrong. I guess couldn't come up with an alternative at the, right. at the moment. So that's that's good. So so you have this in your heart. Yes. Is there a practice that goes with it? That he, I, I know that when you talk to Krishna Das, Krishna Das says that uh, Maharaji sent him back to America to sing, and right. that's what he came to do. But I, I'm wondering, is that the practice? That, uh, well, for Krishna Das, yes. Yes. Okay. So <laughs> so was there? So there was not. A specific practice that uh, no. Maharaji gave. Okay, so what did he tell you to do? He didn't tell me to do anything, but by calling me his private secretary, that somehow led to me working on various books about him from 
Dada Mukherjee's book, By His Grace, The Near and the Dear. I worked on Krishna Das's book, Chance of a Lifetime. I, I've always had some sort of behind the scenes work in terms of what I felt Maharaji had asked me to do, in a sense. So that was your practice, was sort of continuing the teaching, bringing the teaching out into the Western world so people can grab it or have access to it. Exactly. You know, there are so many gurus. There's so many. And, you know, some, I mean, if we're talking about levels of consciousness, and I'm not going to ask you to to be judgmental, I will be judgmental and just (laughs) simply say there are so many, you know, if we're talking about higher levels of consciousness, it seems to me that most of these gurus are on the very lowest level and they haven't, they're they're nowhere near where, uh, Neem Karoli Baba was, and, and maybe we should say still is, how can a person who's just, oh, I'm interested in this, but I don't know the difference from one guru and another guru, what would they look for to say, oh, this person is worthy of my attention? Well, it's interesting because you can learn something from almost every teacher until the point where you say, this is no longer for me and go on your way. And I think what people need to look for is how they feel in front of somebody. Do they feel that the person sees them, the guru sees them, really sees who they are, and is dealing with them on an individual level, and that it's personal, and it's meaningful, and it's something that feels surrounded by love. So I think that's really important, this last notion of feeling surrounded by love. Mm. Lots of people I know who have had guru experiences, the experience seems to be tinged, if not overwhelmed, by fear. And that should be yeah. the trigger that, no, you're in the wrong place. This, yeah. this is the wrong person for you. And that's what you felt from uh, Maharaji, is, is this overwhelming love. Yes, absolutely. I mean, and we even saw him get angry at, at people, you know, for... You know, there was one person, an Indian, who worked in the ashram who let 40 pounds of potatoes rot. You know, it was like his fault. And Maharaji yelled at him, I mean, really powerfully, and banished him from the ashram. And, you know, and that was it. He was, he was gone. And we looked at it sort of in horror. It was like, how could Maharaji do something like that? You know, is this the loving being that we know. And when we came down to see him after this had happened, he looked at us and he said, never throw anyone out of your heart. In other words, he had punished somebody for having, I'm sure there was more karmically behind it than just the potatoes. But, you know, it was like he certainly did not throw this person out of his heart. Just out of the ashram. Just out of the ashram. So you've created this book with these stories in it. Is there one that just sticks in your mind that you can share with us? Oh, my God. <laughs> One story from anybody? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I'm just thinking, uh, there, when we were there, there was this three-week war that happened between India and Pakistan. And uh, we were in Vrindavan with Maharaji at the time that the war started, and he basically sent us all away because eight miles away, you know, there were bombs falling. So a couple of people went to Delhi waiting for this war to be over. And at one point, Maharaji showed up in Delhi, and they found out where he was and went to see him. Krishna and Mirabai were the only Westerners there at this point, with all the top brass from the army and a couple of ministers from the Indira Gandhi's government. And they were all seeking his counsel. And Krishna thought, who had been a big anti-war protester in America and had you know, one of the reasons he left America was because of all the involvement in this. And he said, what am I supposed to learn, Maharaji, by being in this country during wartime? And Maharaji just looked at him and shook his finger and said, 
learn to be peaceful. And that was deeply, deeply profound for him. Wow. Okay. That's a good place to bring this to a close. My guest today was Parvati Marcus. Her new book, Love Everyone, The Transcendent Wisdom of Neem Karoli Baba, told through the stories of the Westerners whose lives he transformed, is reviewed in the November-December issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. You can learn more about Maharaji at maharaji.com. Parvati Marcus, thank you so much for being with us on Essential Conversations. And can I say that a better place to learn about him would be to go to ramdas.org. Excellent. Thank you for that. Support for this show comes from Monroe Products, dedicated to helping people develop their full potential with its extraordinary HemiSync brainwave entrainment technology for balancing and focusing the brain. You can learn more about the HemiSync technology at hemisync.com. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Visit spiritualityhealth.com and subscribe to the magazine in either print or digital formats. And download the iTunes app for this podcast. Essential Conversations is produced by Corinne Johnston, and our program coordinator is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Intuition is our spiritual GPS and the single best tool that we have for navigating our lives. I'm Victoria Shaw, and on my Intuitive Connection podcast, I will share with you the ways to connect with your intuition and awaken the gifts of your soul. In each episode, I'll draw on my own intuitive gifts and my training as an Ivy League trained counselor and psychologist to help support you in reaching your highest potential. Start listening now on Mind Body Spirit FM Podcast Network or wherever you find your podcasts.